0: exactly how many of these we've had, but I'm sure in the future we'll do some more, but for the moment uh, this is the last one before we move on to something else in September. And at the end we'll have our microphone for questions, and I hope that there are some questions because I would guess there'll be some things we need to iron out at the end of this to make sure we're understanding it correctly. So if you have questions, either scribble them down or keep them in mind. But I'll just pray before we look at this. Father, we thank you for another beautiful day, and I pray that as we sit here in the heat, uh, after a hot day, that you'll help us to uh, concentrate, uh, not necessarily on what I'm saying, but on what you have said, and continue to say through your word, and what other uh, wise people have said about your word. And we do want to honor you with every area of our lives, both our thinking and our actions. That's why we look at these different topics. And so I pray that you will help us to understand the truth about this subject tonight. And we pray that you will be glorified in all that we say and ask and exchange even afterwards. Amen. Amen. I think this is a topic that's never been more relevant because we live today in a time of unparalleled freedom. We have many more opportunities and options today than previous generations had in a whole lot of areas of life. And we probably agree, for the most part, that's a very good thing. We can be thankful for it. However, there are drawbacks to all the options we have today. It can be a lot harder for us to know which options to choose. In the midst of endless possibilities, we need help. We need guidance. And as Christians, we're thinking particularly about guidance from God. And the good news is, God has promised to give us guidance. In Psalm 32, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Or in the book of Proverbs, we're told, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Or it could be translated, he will direct your paths. The Bible promises God will guide us. So the big question is, how does he guide us? And we're going to think about this in three sections. First, we'll think about God's will and what we mean when we talk about God's will. Then second, we'll look at a wrong turn we can take as Christians. And then finally, we'll try to describe a guided life. What does a guided life look like? So first, what do we mean when we talk about God's will? Or more precisely, what does the Bible mean when it talks about God's will? It speaks about God's will in two ways. God's sovereign will and God's revealed will. So what do we mean, first of all, then, by God's sovereign will? Don't worry about the bit in brackets just yet. The Bible tells us God has an utterly comprehensive plan for everything that happens in the universe. And it tells us that plan will come to pass. Every last detail of it will happen. In Isaiah, God says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. In Ephesians, God is called the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And his will covers every conceivable detail. It covers the big picture, the little details, and everything in between. Jesus said, not a single sparrow falls to the ground outside your father's knowledge and will. Neither does a single hair of your head. In Psalm 139, the psalmist says to God, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And for those of us who belong to God's people through faith in Jesus, all of this Is incredibly comforting nothing and no one can derail God's plans for us or for his creation nothing can separate us from his love God's sovereign will is a massive comfort to us we know there is no such thing as chance or luck or a coincidence We can be confident that in all things, our sovereign God is working for the good of those who love him. That's what he's promised to do. And often we can look back on our lives and we can see that, even if we can't see it now. One day we will. But in terms of our topic this afternoon, what we also need to notice about God's sovereign will is that until it actually happens, it's secret. When it comes to God's sovereign will for the future, the vast majority of it is known only to God. I say the vast majority of it is known only to God because God has told us some things about his sovereign will for the future. We know some details about the big picture. Jesus will return. All evil will be defeated and judged. And God's people will reign with him on a new earth. So we know something about the big picture for the future. But when it comes to the daily details of God's sovereign will for our own daily lives, we know nothing. Gary Friesen puts it like this. One can know God's sovereign will, but only after it happens. Would you like to know His sovereign plan for the past? Find a good history book and curl up with it on a rainy day. If something happened, it was part of the plan. Would you like to know God's sovereign will for next Tuesday? Wait until next Wednesday. Only God knows what will happen in advance, and he's not telling. At the level of daily details, God's sovereign will for the future is known only to God. But there's a second way the Bible talks about God's will. There is also God's revealed will. And we could define God's revealed will like this. It's the commands in the Bible that teach how human beings ought to believe and live. God's revealed will is his desire for the way we live. And if God's sovereign will is secret, God's revealed will is 100% public. 100% of God's revealed will can be known by anyone who picks up a Bible and reads it. The book of Deuteronomy says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So there you have both aspects of God's will mentioned in the one verse. The secret things are God's sovereign will, the things revealed are God's revealed will. God has made his revealed will public so that we will live by it, so we'll follow it. So when we read in scripture about doing God's will, what's being referred to is God's revealed will. God does not expect us to figure out his sovereign will to make sure we do it right. It's secret. He expects us to obey what he has revealed to us. So for example, in Hebrews we read, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And if we read that chapter, we'd see those verses come at the end of a chapter giving commands and instructions about how to live. When the writer of Hebrews talks about God's will, he's talking about God's revealed will. the Commands in the Bible that teach how human beings ought to believe and live. Here's another example from Matthew 7. Where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And again, Jesus is talking in the context about obeying his Father's revealed will. That verse comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, full of commands and instruction about how to live. So hopefully we're clear on the Bible's two ways of speaking about God's will. And we'll come back to his revealed will a little bit later. But before that, we need to think about a wrong turn we can make. Trying to figure out God's sovereign will for our lives. When we talk about seeking God's will, I think this is often what we're hoping for. When we say I'm praying about what I should do, what we usually mean I think is I'm hoping to discover in advance what God's sovereign will is for some decision in my life. I'm faced with a decision where I should live, who I should marry or if I should marry, which job I should go for, which course I should apply for and faced with this decision I want God to give me the right answer. Now, let's be clear. Does God have a specific sovereign will for all of those things? He certainly does. His sovereign will includes all the things I just mentioned and much, much more. And let's be clear on something else. Has God sometimes revealed the specific details of His sovereign will ahead of time? Has He given the right answer to some people? Yes, He has. There are lots of examples in the Bible. One example is found in Matthew chapter 1. We're told Joseph discovered that his fiancée Mary was pregnant. He knew that he was not the father. And so he planned to break off the engagement. But God intervened in that situation to reveal to Joseph his specific sovereign will for that situation. Matthew tells us an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph could not have discovered from God's revealed will that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit and that he should go ahead and marry her. We could look at plenty of other examples. God can intervene to disclose some part of his sovereign will. And if we look through the examples in Scripture, if we took time to do that, we would find two things. First of all, when God does it, and this is important, he does it directly and unmistakably, either through an audible voice or an angelic messenger or a powerful dream. It's direct and it's unmistakable. And second, the the second thing we notice is when God chooses to reveal in advance some details of his sovereign will, they tend to be at significant turning points in God's big sovereign plan. Like the incarnation of God's son. That's what was going on when Mary became pregnant and gave birth to Jesus. That was a significant turning point, maybe the significant turning point. And in that situation, God gave Joseph very clear direction. Or think of another time God was about to bring a unique deliverance of his people, the Exodus. Ahead of that, God revealed his sovereign will to Moses. He appeared in a burning bush and spoke to him. In other words, even in Scripture, it was not normal for God to reveal parts of his sovereign will ahead of time. It was rare and unusual at crucial points. Recently, we had our annual safeguarding training a couple of Saturdays ago. And as part of that, Peter was talking about social media, and he was talking about the impression we can get about other people's lives when we look at social media. So we look at a record of the special events in their lives, the stuff that they choose to put on Facebook or Instagram. We look at that, and we assume their lives are like that all the time. They're always at parties. Or they're always visiting some cool place or standing on the top of some big mountain. And we can come away from scripture with that impression too. Thinking God normally appeared to Moses in burning bushes. Or he summoned him up mountain type, him up on a mountaintop to reveal his will to him often. Or we might assume that God regularly spoke to Jesus' human father, Joseph, in dreams telling Joseph what to do each day as he tried to parent the little boy, Jesus. But there's no indication that was the case. As far as we know, Joseph and Mary had to parent Jesus the way all of us have to parent, praying for wisdom desperately and trying to be obedient to Scripture. Without the benefit of regular news flashes, giving God's sovereign will for the decisions of that day. The point I'm trying to make is the ordinary daily lives of God's people in Scripture were not filled with audible voices from heaven. They were not filled with angelic messengers from heaven or powerful dreams showing people what they were to do next. Let's go back to the first thing we noticed about the unusual times in Scripture where God announces some specific detail of his sovereign will in advance. We notice that when he does it, he does it clearly and unmistakably. He doesn't do it through hints and suggestions. But when you and I decide to try and figure out God's sovereign will, isn't that what we tend to go looking for? We go on the alert for anything that might be a sign from God. So let's just think for a few minutes about four popular ways that people have and still do try to do that. First of all, inward impressions or gut feelings. There are lots of different names for this, but what it boils down to is the idea that when we have a decision to make, maybe God will nudge us in the right direction by putting an idea in our head or putting a feeling in our stomach. But there's one simple problem with making decisions based on our gut feelings. The problem is our gut feelings are just as likely to be wrong as they are to be right. I think if each of us kept a little logbook of our gut feelings over the years, we'd see that the success rate isn't great. Maybe we remember one or two times where we had a feeling and it all turned out splendidly, but we tend to forget all the other times where we were completely off track with our gut feelings. Stuart Olliot says, we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that the Lord is sending us somewhere or telling us to do some particular task when nothing of the sort is happening at all. Gut feelings are unreliable. But haven't we seen when God chooses to tell some detail of his sovereign will to people in the Bible, he does it clearly. He does not use such ambiguous unreliable methods as this Gary Friesen says impressions are real believers experience them but impressions are not authoritative impressions are impressions call them spiritual or attribute them to the holy spirit and they're still the same just impressions impressions by any any other name confuse the issue, and confound the believer in the process of decision-making. He goes on to say, Impressions do not merit special attention. If God wants something, someone to do something that is not indicated in his revealed word, he will tell them in plain words. But impressions do not have any authority requiring obedience. So if you have a gut feeling about something... By all means consider it but don't use it as an excuse to avoid making a careful wise decision otherwise what's the difference from an unbeliever who says i just do whatever my heart tells me to do but the bible tells us our hearts are deceitful we can't rely on their impressions and maybe you would mostly agree with that as I'm saying it. But maybe you'd want to make an exception. What about getting a sense of peace about a decision? Surely we can take that as God's guidance, giving us the go-ahead. And on the other hand, surely God withholds a sense of peace to stop us from going through with a wrong decision well, that might sound good, but again, it's unreliable. Kevin DeYoung says, the fact is, most decisions in life leave us feeling a little unsettled. They are, after all, big decisions. When you decide to get married or move or buy a house, it will be scary because it's big and new and unknown and permanent. At least the marriage should be. But this doesn't mean the Lord is withholding peace about the decision in order to get you to back out. When you're making a decision, by all means, take account of whether you have a peace about it. But don't make that the determining factor. Sometimes what we are about to do is the right thing, but it requires courage. And our fears make us uneasy about it the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling it doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul had a sense of peace about taking the gospel to Corinth but it was the right thing to do and so he pressed on in spite of his lack of peace Now, the Bible certainly does speak about a peace given to us by God But it's a peace that comes to us as we trust God in our difficulties and uncertainties. Even when we're not sure which direction to take, we can have peace because we trust that God is in control and he knows what he's doing. That's what the Bible means by the peace of God. It's not like a green light telling us we've got a decision right. It's a deep assurance that God is with us even if we're not sure what to do. Another way we try to figure out God's sovereign will is sometimes by trying to interpret our circumstances. So we look at everything that's going on in our lives and we say, what is God trying to tell me through these various things? So we might talk about God opening a door for us or we might talk about God closing a door for us. And what we mean is, an opportunity has presented itself to us, or an opportunity seems to have shut down for us. But why would we interpret closed doors or open doors as a revelation of God's sovereign will? Judas Iscariot was faced with an open door to betray Jesus. But the devil had opened that particular door. And isn't it true the devil can throw obstacles in our way too? When we face what seems to be a closed door, couldn't it be the devil trying to stop us from something we should do? What we can say is an open door is an opportunity, but we still have to decide whether to persevere in taking that opportunity. A closed door is an obstacle, but we still have to decide whether to go on in trying to overcome that obstacle. What we mustn't do is take open or closed doors as reliable indicators of God's sovereign will for us. The Apostle Paul in Colossians prayed for open doors for the gospel. But when those open doors came, Paul still had to decide which of the opportunities he was going to take. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said he had an open door to preach the gospel in Troas. But then he tells us he decided to go to Macedonia instead. He had an opportunity in Troas, but he didn't take that as an indication. God was telling him he had to go there. He decided it was better and wiser to go to Macedonia. Now let's think about fleeces. That may be a familiar idea to some of you, and maybe it means nothing at all to some of you. What is he talking about? It comes from the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 6, we're told God sent an angel to Gideon. The angel commissioned Gideon to go and save Israel from the Midianites who were oppressing Israel at that time. But Gideon was quite a fearful man. And so before he went to fight the Midianites, he set a fleece on the ground not a jacket, an actual fleece from a sheep, he put it in the ground and he asked God to make just the fleece wet with the morning dew while the ground around it was to be dry. And God did that for Gideon. And the next night Gideon asked God to reverse the situation to make the fleece dry in the morning and the ground around it wet. And again God did what Gideon asked. And so sometimes Christians have taken that as a legitimate way to discover God's sovereign will. They don't use actual fleeces, but they ask God to do some specific thing. So for example, Lord, if I should propose to Mildred, let her phone me this week at nine o'clock on Tuesday night. That sort of thing. But there are significant problems with that approach. First, that is not what was going on with Gideon's fleece. He was not looking for guidance from God. God had already revealed what Gideon was to do. God had revealed his will directly and unmistakably through an angelic messenger. Gideon was in no doubt about God's specific will. He knew he was to attack the Midianites. Gideon put out the fleece because he lacked the faith to obey God's word. The fleece was about getting reassurance that God would be with him. You'll see that if you read through Judges chapter 6. So Gideon was not looking for guidance. And another problem with the kind of fleece we sometimes try and use today is that Gideon's fleece was an unmistakably miraculous sign. It was not like Mildred phoning you at 9 o'clock. If you happen to know Mildred at all, there's always the chance she might call you. On the other hand, the mourning Jew does not fall only on the fleece while leaving the grind dry, nor does it fall only on the grind while leaving the fleece dry. Only a miracle can make that happen. But when Christians today try to do some equivalent of a fleece, they're not usually asking for a miracle. They're asking for something that might easily happen in the normal run of things. A phone call from somebody they know. And so that means even if we get our fleece, we're foolish to take it as God's guidance. If you really want to use Gideon's method, go all out and ask for a proper miracle. But actually, I don't suggest that you try fleeces at all. Just because God was gracious with Gideon doesn't mean what Gideon did was a good idea. That certainly doesn't mean we should try to copy it. Then a fourth way we sometimes can try to figure out God's sovereign will for our lives. Flipping through the Bible. I'm not talking here about reading the Bible carefully and studying it to learn what it teaches. I'm talking about flipping through it randomly just to see if anything happens to jump out at you or sticking a pin in it at random you may have heard about the man who decided he was going to try that looking for direction from god so he flipped his bible open stuck in his pin and the first verse the pin landed in was matthew chapter 27 verse 5 judas went and hanged himself he thought that can't be right i'll try again he opened to a different place. This time his pen landed on Luke chapter ten, verse thirty-seven. Go and do likewise. He said to himself, I'll give it one more go. This time he landed in John chapter 13, verse 27. What you are about to do, do quickly. And I'm sure that's a made up story. But it does show that is a mad way to use the Bible. It's badly misusing the Bible. And if we try to find God's sovereign will that way, we probably deserve all of the confusion we get. And the big point of all this is that trying to figure out God's sovereign will for our lives is a wrong turn. If God wants to tell you some detail of it in advance, he will do it clearly with no ambiguity or uncertainty. You won't have to play Sherlock Holmes. and in the meantime trying to look for clues is a bad idea but it's attractive to us and the reason it's so attractive is that making decisions is often hard hard work it just seems so much easier to try and have God make the decision for us it's kind of like trying to hack into the teacher's computer the night before an exam so we can get all the answers instead of studying the material the teacher has chosen to give us and then doing our best. But God expects more from us than that, more than trying to hack into his computer. God has dignified us with more responsibility than that. God's goal for us is not that we remain immature and irresponsible children, needing to be fed the right answers all the time, God wants us to grow into mature, responsible adulthood. And so he does not feed us daily doses of his sovereign will. And he does not invite us to seek daily doses of it. Instead, God gives us the tools to navigate life in a way that honors him. And so Haddon Robinson says, we must change the question. Instead of wondering, how do I find the sovereign will of God, a better question to pursue is, how do I make good decisions? And so we'll think now about a guided life. Kevin DeYoung says, wisdom is what we need to live a godly life. God does not tell us the future, nor does he expect us to figure it out. When we don't know which way to turn and are faced with tough decisions in life, God expects us to trust him and to be wise. And the Bible assures us, God is ready and eager to give wisdom to all those who seek it from him and seek it diligently. So how do we do that? How do we get wisdom so we can live wisely? I think there are two keys to this. To start with, there's our posture reliance on God. Our posture is how we position ourselves. In this case, not how we position our body, but how we position our heart and our will. Wisdom starts with the right stance, the right attitude to God. And this is what Proverbs means when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the Bible, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean terror, doesn't mean your knees are knocking together. It means recognizing and accepting the truth about God's position and our position. He's God, we're not. To fear God is to live in harmony with that reality, to accept it. And it's not an easy thing. For most of us, our default position, actually for all of us, is to challenge God's position to think we know better than him, to think we could do better than him. Adam and Eve thought that, and human beings have been thinking it ever since. But Jim Packer says, Not till we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down. Not till then can divine wisdom become ours. It is to be feared that many Christians spend all their lives in too unhumbled and conceited a frame of mind ever to gain wisdom from God at all. That's why Proverbs says, with humility comes wisdom. Unless we have an appropriate humility before God, we will never become wise. And that's the point of the verses we put on the screen at the very start. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Those verses are about the posture we take towards God. We trust his wisdom more than we trust our own. And when we're in that posture, we are ready to be guided by God. Now, that doesn't mean being fed a daily dose of insight into his sovereign plans being guided by God means being given the wisdom we need to face the decisions of each day and this is where prayer comes into the picture the Bible does not say to us when you have decisions to make pray for God to give you the right answer the Bible says when you have decisions to make pray for God to give you wisdom James chapter 1 And remember the reason for that. God doesn't want us to stay spiritual babies. He wants us to grow up into mature, responsible members of his family. So we pray for wisdom to make mature decisions that will honor God in our circumstances. Why did God set it up this way? Because he's concerned about how we respond to our circumstances. Circumstances, Hebrews tells us, are part of God's training for us. If he fed us the answer sheet ahead of time, it would defeat the whole purpose. His desire is that we grow in Christ-likeness, and that happens as we learn to make increasingly Christ-like decisions in our daily lives. So we pray, Lord, I'm faced with a decision. As I make this decision give me the desire to seek first your kingdom and your glory. As I weigh things up, give me the wisdom and maturity to make a decision that honors you. As I make this decision, I don't want to be motivated by pride or greed or pleasing people. So Lord, I'm not asking you for the magical right answer. I'm asking for a heart that puts you and your kingdom first. I'm asking for the right motives and motivations. Do you see how different that is from praying, Lord, give me a sign. Should I propose to Mildred? Should I take this job? There's no maturity or wisdom needed if an answer is just handed down from heaven. And the vast majority of the time, God has chosen not to do things that way. He's chosen to give us responsibility. He wants us to look to him for wisdom and make a decision that seeks to honor and glorify him. And when we do that, isn't that already much more glorifying to God than if he just fed us the right answers and we did whatever it said on the piece of paper? So that's the first key to living wisely, our posture. It's a posture of reliance on God. The second key is our source of wisdom, God's written word. And here, we're not talking about flipping through it or sticking a pin in it. You and I make the Bible our source of wisdom when we take it seriously, working hard to understand it and digest it, letting it renew our way of thinking and our whole outlook on life. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy From infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful, notice not just for getting saved, but it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So how does the Bible equip us? not by dishing out the right answers to us if we go to the bible hoping for that most of the time the bible will frustrate us now yes if you're wondering whether you should steal something or whether you should commit adultery or murder someone the bible will give you the right answer look at the ten commandments but for many of the situations we face the bible isn't going to feed us the right answer it will not tell you whether to pose to Mildred or to take that job and if we try to make the Bible tell us those kind of things we'll end up misusing it we'll be taking verses out of context and trying to get the right answer I've quoted Kevin DeYoung before and he says the Bible is the way it is because God is interested in more than getting us to follow his to-do list he wants transformation God doesn't want us merely to give external obedience to his commands. He wants us to know him so intimately that his thoughts become our thoughts. His ways our ways. His affections are affections. God wants us to drink so deeply of the scriptures that our heads and hearts are transformed so so that we love what he loves and hate what he hates. So instead of direct answers to the decisions we have to make, The Bible shows us the right goals for our decision-making. It tells us the right attitudes to have as we make our decisions. And it sets boundaries for the decisions we make. Let's think of some examples of those three things. Decisions that most of us will face in life, big decisions. But first of all, the Bible will show us the right goals for our decision-making. The Bible tells us that whatever decision we make, small or big, our supreme goal should be to glorify God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you're thinking of doing something and you know it won't glorify God, then don't do it. And then within that supreme goal, the Bible will give us other goals. And these are the, just a few big decisions we might all have to face. Suppose I have parents that are increasingly frail. They're no longer self-sufficient. They're not able to go on as they were before. Is the Bible gonna tell me precisely what to do? No. But it is going to set the goal for the decision that I make. I'm not to make the decision based on what makes my life easiest or what will enable me to inherit the most money. The goal the Bible gives me is to seek the well-being of my parents. 1 Timothy 5 says that is pleasing to God. It's part of my responsibility to honor my father and mother. The Bible also tells us the right attitudes for our decision-making. The New Testament does not tell us how much of our income we should give to the church or to missionary organizations. There's no amount or percentage set out for us. But 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says we are to have a generous attitude towards giving. We're to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. And then the Bible will set boundaries for the decisions we make. Again, another major decision. The Bible will not tell us who to marry. But it does set a couple of boundaries on who we can marry. A Christian can marry whoever he or she likes, provided it's a person of the opposite sex, and provided they're also a Christian. First Corinthians 7 says, Marry anyone you wish to marry, provided that person belongs to the Lord. Now there are lots of other things to think about before you marry someone, but the Bible gives us at least those big boundaries to limit our decisions. So when you have a decision to make, the Bible will set your goals, it will tell you the right attitude to have, and it will set boundaries to limit your decision. Then it's up to you and me to pray for wisdom, pray through the different options, do that before God, lay them out before him, trust in God to guide you as you then make the best decision you can make. And no doubt we'll also want to seek counsel and advice from other people. Christians who are mature, who know us well, or maybe have been through the kind of decision that we are trying to make. We want to find out as much as we can about the different options we have. We want to give a big hearing to common sense. So for example, if I hate traveling, Common sense will tell me not to take a job that involves lots of traveling if I can avoid it. But in the end, common sense has to submit to the divine sense we find in the Bible. Gary Friesen says, common sense that opposes the wisdom of God is no longer sensible. So that means common sense is not the most important factor to consider, but we still ought to consider it. So just summing this up. When we make decisions, we have to consider a whole variety of things. It's wise, it's mature to do that, it's what God expects. But we need to consider all those things with a posture of reliance on God, submitting to him. And our highest authority must be God's written word, his revealed will. What does the Bible say that might apply to this decision I'm trying to make? Then we make a decision, we make plans... And as we do that, we always keep in mind God reserves the right to sovereignly overrule our plans. He's not duty-bound to bless every decision we make. We make our decisions and we move forward, but we do it on the understanding God may well have other plans. And if he does, they will be wiser than ours. So it's okay if he overrules our plans. That's all I wanted to mention specifically, don't know if that has raised any questions